Back to the Protectors Podcast. Tonight, I have a great guest, Fred Burton. Fred is the foremost expert on counterterrorism. He's been around for, you know, uh, decades now. ton of great books out. Uh, Fred agreed to send me some of those books, so I'm putting that on the air. <laughs> I'm just kidding, Fred. But, Fred, <laughs> welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on, Jason. Uh, it's, it's great to have you on. You have such an interesting background, especially when it comes, we were just talking before we got on the air about these matchbooks you put out when you used to work for DSS about Ramsey Youssef. And, you know, we're going back to the, um, you know, the counterterrorism days when you could go out there and do uh, like almost like a PR campaign to find these people, find kill capture or whatever you do in a spooky world. And that's really cool. It really is. I, I look back on that in those days, Jason, and I think about all the things we were just literally flying by the seat of our pants with. Uh, my old boss, Steve Gleason, he actually drew up the first Rewards for Justice program poster on a napkin, and that became you know the first wanted poster for these terrorists. And then when we cooked up the idea for matchbooks, our thought process behind it was that we could flood uh, the Middle East and North Africa and, and Western Europe with these matchbooks. But then, as usual, we ran into problems uh, internally with state didn't want to promote smoking. And uh, then it was kind of interesting, too. Some nation states refused to help us distribute not only the matchbooks, but the wanted posters. So it, it turned into uh, a bit of a kerfluffle. And for the most part, we just decided to act on our own and just distribute them as best we could. So um, that's what we did. And uh, it's amazing uh, the success we had with that program. And, and I'm very proud of that. You know, when we first started with that, you know, I think the most we had to spend was uh, – $2 million. And we set the reward uh, at that level for bringing the fugitives to justice that were responsible for the bombing of Pan Am 103 over Lockerbie. Yeah. And unfortunately, we never did. Uh, but uh, that was our threshold for that because, you know, some of our own agents and U.S. government personnel had been killed on that flight. Well, a lot of people don't realize, and I didn't even back in the day, was that Diplomatic Security Service actually runs counterterrorism ops. You know, you always think of them as like kind of the state uh, protective service detail, but you don't think about them actually out there in a the field running ops. You always kind of think OGA and everybody else is doing it. So, yeah. Yeah, the world kind of shifted. It's really kind of interesting, and I've I've studied this a lot, not only having lived through it, but just in the research for my books, Jason. But when you look at uh, the Omnibus Diplomatic Security Act in 1986, which pretty much uh, gave us funding and en enabled us to expand after the Inman Commission, after the Beirut embassy bombings, uh, part of that included the extraterritorial jurisdiction which um, 
was given to the FBI. And in, in the course of, of um, looking at that at that time, uh, we had to do a lot of horse trading to get authorities. And uh, the FBI being, you know, the best at just lobbying and, and <laughs> um, having, you know how that is. And, yes, I do. I'm married to one and, of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, they were able to take the uh, extraterritorial violations. And because I can tell you in 85, 86, 87 timeframe, you were hard pressed to even get the FBI to help you on a case that involved um, an attack overseas. Uh, I can remember coming back from uh, uh, Libyan backed terrorist attacks uh, in Sana'a and Khartoum and just hoping that the FBI would even pro, uh, would even process some of the forensics. So, you know, the world has kind of shifted and, you know, everything is now from a counterterrorism perspective pretty much in, in the FBI's court when it comes to investigations. But it was not always like that. Yeah, and you know, you have three, how many books do you have now? Three of that I know of that are really good. Let me throw those out here now for the audience. Beirut Rules. The Murder of a CIA Station Chief in Hezbollah's War Against America, Under Fire, The Untold Story of Attack in Benghazi, and Ghost, Confessions of a Counterterrorism Agent. Now, I've read Ghost, and it's an excellent book. Buy it, especially if you want to get into the CT world. But, you know, you're touching on all the main, the main CT hits over the past, you know, three decades, three, four decades now. I think what you're saying is I'm old. No, what I'm saying is you are an <laughs> expert, Fred. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, well, you write what you know, Jason, just like yes. you do. And, uh, you know, uh, one of the books that I did write that I'm very proud of is a book called Chasing Shadows. And uh, that. Uh, Chasing Shadows. Yeah, I, I forgot all about that one. Yeah, that, uh, to me, uh, that uh, was the kind of case that that really intrigued me because it was an Israeli uh, military attache that was assassinated in my neighborhood. And this was in 1973. And um, the family vanishes shortly thereafter. And this was obviously during the, you know, post Munich days. And mm -hmm. to make a long story short, uh, I went back and kind of reopened that case when I was still at state and then I, it kind of stuck with me over the years. So, Fred, let me let me read this real quick. On a warm Saturday night in July 1973 in Bethesda, Maryland, right up the road from me, a gunman stepped out from behind a tree and fired five point-blank shots in a Joe Alon, an unassuming Israeli Air Force pilot and family man. Alon's 16-year-old neighbor, Fred Burton, was deeply shocked by this crime that rocked his neighborhood. That's you. Yeah, that was a long time ago, but uh, it was one of those kinds of cases that you kind of never forget. And um, I became a Montgomery County, Maryland cop first, and I used to drive by that house and that street when I got off at the four to two shift and just think about what happened. And then um, obviously as a, as a cop, I had no ability to, to solve or look into something like that as a just a patrol officer, but and a, and a rookie one at that. But uh, as soon as I got into the State Department, I was able to see things and and request information and files that I never had would have had access to as a cop. But to make a long story short, um, 
you know, I eventually hunted down um, the shooter. Uh, and um, I'm very proud of the fact, Jason, that the book was printed in Hebrew hmm. for the family, for the Elan family, because they were just wonderful in the course of the many years of looking at this case. And and the uh, Israeli Air Force actually put the book on their uh, official website. So, you know, that when you do books, as you know, those kinds of things mean a lot. There's such a different medium when you put words to paper. I can go on TV all day long as as you do, but when you read it and you see the book, it just it, it brings it to life. And that is such a cool feeling that you're not only your book is making a change. It's like a difference, and it's just I don't know. It, when I was a kid, I used to go to the the, uh, the library, and I could only find like you know I was obsessed with counterterrorism. Carlos the Jackal, um, the Red uh, the Red Army, everything back in the uh, the 80s and or well yeah it was the 80s. And now you're you know you're essentially with your books, you might be melding or mentoring the next generation of, of counterterrorism agents. If you ever think about it that way. Well, you're very kind to say that, and it's funny you mentioned. Uh... Carlos the Jackal, I, I recall um, as a young agent in our three-man office, um, I had this grainy picture of the Jackal on, you know, thumbtacked <laughs> to, my, to my wall. And you fast forward uh, to a few years back, I, um, I have a signed copy of my book, Chasing Shadows, by Carlos the Jackal. Wow. And it, it's kind of... Um, Surreal. Ironic. Yeah, it's very surreal because he signs it, you know, with best revolutionary regards, Carlos. <laughs> and uh, I don't think he liked the ending, but that's okay. I don't want to spoil it for your listeners, but uh, <laughs> uh, there, the Carlos the Jackal um, kind of surfaced after the book was written. And I was contacted by the FBI in Paris who wanted copies of the book, and uh, they they asked me, who would I interview if I could? And I said, well, I would go see the Jackal. And so that led to um, mm. several rat holes, as you know, in this business that you can only go down at times. And mm -hmm. lo and behold, uh, a few weeks later, I get my book returned, signed by the Jackal. Wow. It's such an interesting world, you know that? And it's such a small world when you think about it. I mean, the way you and I got in contact was through Thomas, and Thomas and I got in contact through another, uh, I believe it was uh, Dan Gabriel from Mosul, the uh, movie. It just, it's such a small world and network. It's, it's really cool, and it's really interesting. Now, well, I think so, without a doubt. And I, I think, um, much like cops uh, have network uh, networks, I, this is just that kind of uh, existence that we're in. Yeah, and I've noticed a pattern. You know, a lot of different people I talk to that write the the nonfiction types have and especially the law enforcement and in the intel world have some sort of background, whether it be a lifeguard, whether it be, you know, working for the fire department, police. It's always that that kind of background where it's like like the title of the show, Protectors. They always want to protect their either neighborhood or their country. It's it's really cool. Well, I got in this business, uh, you know, when I was 17 in public safety, I volunteered at uh, uh, the Bethesda Chevy Chase Rescue Squad in Bethesda, Maryland, my hometown. And and that kind of uh, lit the, the flame, I think, um, because, you know, once you start riding around in 
heavy rescue trucks. And in those days we had Cadillac ambulances just to show you how old I am. And, uh, you know, the EMT program had just started. Uh, it was, uh, a lot of fun. And, you know, in many ways I look back on my life during that time period and, you know, I don't know why I went the police route. I very easily could have went the fire and rescue route and probably, probably would have uh, been just as happy. Yeah. And it's weird. These different, you know, the different steps you take, you know, just think if you went the fire route though, then you might not have been a CT agent and you might not have done all the great things you've done. So, I mean, it's just, you just don't know. (laughs) Yeah. You don't know. You don't know. It's, it's fun to reminisce though. It is absolutely, especially when you get around (laughs) other cops and firefighters and everybody else and, and people you've worked with throughout the uh, Intel community. Funny stories. There's always a funny story somewhere. No doubt. Now, what is Strat for? We are a geopolitical intelligence company. Uh, Strat for stands for Strategic Forecasting. Uh, we have been in existence for 22 years. Uh, we try to make sense of the world. Uh, we look at geopolitics, economics, uh, terrorism, uh, nation state shifts. Uh, we have a huge uh, uh, state and local federal government clients that, that read our analysis. And then uh, we do a tremendous amount of work for multinational corporations when uh, you know, they're looking at all the troubled hotspots around the world. So you know, the kind of question we would typically get, Jason, would be you know, like with the saber rattling uh, over the uh, North Korea uh, missile program, would be, you know, what if there's some sort of conflict in the South China Sea? What does that mean to the supply chain? Uh, or, uh, God forbid, um, Israel tries to do a preemptive strike on Iran due to their nuclear program. What's that going to mean for our business operations uh, in North Africa and the Middle East? So those are the kinds of questions that we get. And um, we've got a little over 100 staff uh home based here in Austin, Texas. And, and that's what we do. Uh, great place to live. And, um, yeah, I'm probably going to come out to work for you guys in a few years. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the town, uh, I've been here now, um, going on 20 years, it's certainly changed. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it used to be a sleepy little university town here, uh, where the university of Texas is located, but now every high tech company in the world oh, is here. Yeah. And so uh, the infrastructure in the town has not kept up with the growth. Let me just say that. I, uh, the last time I was there was 96 because I was stationed at Fort Hood. So, yeah, oh, wow. it's been yeah. a while, yeah. Yeah, I went up to Fort Hood. Uh, I did, um, uh, for my last book, uh, Beirut Rules, about Bill Buckley, he was in the first CAV uh, as an 18-year-old huh. went in Korea. So I went up to the museum there, and they could not have been more helpful in, in helping me look back at some of the old records from uh, the Korean War. Yeah, let's talk about him a bit. How did you, why, why that book? Was it just something you were, you kind of piqued your interest? No, Jason, um, when I was uh, an agent, uh, I was uh, dispatched or transferred to the CIA to work on the hostage location task force. And this was predominantly uh, CIA-led FBI participation, DOD, state. 
So I was state's agent assigned there. And our mission was to locate Bill Buckley, who was the station chief that had been kidnapped uh, after volunteering to go to Beirut. And meanwhile, um, Bill is also one of many Westerners that were held hostage from Father Martin Jinko, a Catholic priest, mm-hmm. to, uh, Terry Waite, the Archbishop of Canterbury, to Terry Anderson with the Associated Press, to Charlie Glass, who was with ABC News. And so um, I worked on Bill's case. And, you know, in those days, in, in, in the 80s and on up into the early 90s, we just pretty much uh, didn't have the human intelligence or the technical assets to be able to figure out at any given moment where the hostages were. But we certainly tried, Jason, uh, as you know, from your life and experience in this business. uh, We did everything we humanly could possibly think of doing at this time period to find Bill and the other hostages. But, you know, unfortunately, uh, Bill died a miserable death um, after being uh, beaten and tortured by Hezbollah, and um, ultimately um, died in captivity. So we were not able to get to him uh, or Lieutenant Colonel Rich Higgins, uh, who was another Marine officer that had been kidnapped by the same group. Uh, But we were successful in uh, ultimately locating and uh, bringing their remains home for proper burial here in the United States in 1991. Yeah, it, it's it's so I can't even explain what you went through back then, especially the frustration. And a lot of people don't realize about human intelligence is so tough to develop, especially in in the Middle East. And I don't know. I can only imagine a frustration. I'm sure when I read the book that it's gonna it's gonna show through with your words. Well, it was uh, very disheartening at times. Uh, I mean. As usual, you can't make some of this stuff up. I mean, uh, we had uh, every resource that you can imagine in the early 80s and the mid-80s at our disposal, but yet at the end of the day, we we didn't have anybody on the streets that could tell you, you know, Bill and the other hostages are in this building right now, uh, enable you know, to enable us to do anything such as, you know, lean um, Delta forward or... Um, lean JSOC forward to try to do a hostage rescue. We just simply lacked that kind of intelligence. And without it, we were looking for needles in a haystack. Yeah. You know, and if any lessons are learned from this is it is the value of human intelligence and to keep those networks in place, even if it's not a hot spot now, you still need to keep networks in place. You really do. And, you know, Bill, uh, you know, you know, from your background and experience, uh, you you consistently run into people that are just different. And Bill was just different, Bill Buckley. I mean, this is a kid that volunteers to go to Korea right out of high school where he's awarded the Silver Star and Purple Heart for rushing a machine gun nest. And then he comes back to the United States, gets his degree at Boston University, uh, enlists as an officer, Uh, in Vietnam and becomes a Green Beret where he's awarded another Silver Star for gallantry under fire, uh, joins the CIA 
you know, is sent to all these hot spots around the globe for years. And then at age 55, uh, volunteers to go to Beirut, Jason, after the first embassy bombing, yeah. which decimated us and took, took out the CIA station. Uh, it, it closed our eyes and to uh, this new threat that we had there when we're trying to stand up, you know, the, uh, this new group to, to look at this, this organization called Hezbollah. Hmm. And while he's in captivity, you know, we have um, the second embassy bombing uh, and in the U S embassy bombing, and then interspersed with hijackings and assassinations. So, you know, this group was just on a relentless tear, you know, the likes of the, the likes of which we hadn't seen since black September at that moment in time. And, uh, Bill volunteers to go to one of the hottest spots in the world after it just had been literally mm-hmm. blown up and, uh, everybody in the station killed. I, uh, I always wonder what I would do in a situation like that. And it's just, if you listen to these stories and you, you hear him firsthand accounts of him and uh, them, her and him, and it's just it's unbelievable the the amount of people out there that are true heroes. It's just, and he is he was one, yeah, definitely. He really was. Uh, he was the and is the fifty first star on the wall of honor at the CIA, and um, I'm really honored to have told his story. That is uh, going to be up on my reading list. And I can't wait. And we could find your books everywhere, um, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. So that is it. So buy that book, buy all the books by Fred Burton because your stories are amazing. And I remember reading Ghosts, and I was like, ah, oh, this is good stuff. Well, thank you very much, Jason. You're you're way too kind. <laughs> I'm just a podcaster, so uh, you guys are the real experts. Well, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate you having me on. Now, Fred, where can we find you? Well, um, I'm, I have, uh, you know, Twitter. I'm at, at Fred underscore Burton. Uh, you can reach out to me uh, at stratfor.worldview.com, uh, or you can uh, certainly visit my own website, which is uh, officialfredburton.com. Fred, I really appreciate it. Um, on behalf of the protectors and the audience, thanks for everything you've done and still do. Intel is such an important topic and such an important thing that we need it. And especially human intelligence. Just got to keep pinging on it. Human intelligence. Thanks so much, Jason. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks, Fred. Thank you. Now, 